This week in the Dan Cave, as the offseason gets into full swing for the Seahawks, I'll highlight two possible players who could help the team. One a draft pick, and the other a big name who's about to become a free agent. And how about the idea of trading Bobby Wagner? Is it smart or just plain crazy? And the rebuilding Seattle Mariners are less than two weeks away from opening spring training. I'll name the three young players I believe will be the key to the team's future. And I unveil two new weekly segments, including one that's been around for over 26 years. The Dan Cave is up next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dan Cave, episode 26. What would that be, the Ken Hamlin episode? Michael Bulware? Maybe Bulware was 28. You know, if I'm going to do this, I should really look him up ahead of time, right? Thanks for joining me again. I appreciate the support for the podcast. Hope your 2019 is treating you well as it's now February officially. So many of you who started going to the gym uh, on January 1st probably stopped yesterday. In fact, I had a couple of people in my bar that um, literally told me that's what they were there to celebrate. They were having drinks because they made it through January uh, without having a drink. So I guess I guess you just throw it all away once the calendar turns to, to February. Um, one of the things that February means for the NFL is, uh, well, the Super Bowl now always seems to fall on the first Sunday in February. That'll be played tomorrow. But it also is when the offseason really cranks up uh, for most teams. And we've seen the Seahawks already begin their offseason being rather busy, signing a kicker and a potential backup quarterback and a potential rotational defensive tackle. But things really start to pick up after the Super Bowl is finished because um, the focus shifts to the Combine and then to the NFL Draft. Um, free agency before that, though, that that that's in March. So Combine, then free agency, then the Draft. And this is really a crucial offseason for the Seahawks. And now that we're here, and the more that I dive into it and try to take a wide view of it and see where the team is, it's different than I thought it would be. What I mean by that is if if you go back to last offseason or the beginning of the 2018 season and the beginning of this podcast, really, we talked a lot about, my thoughts anyway, and there were many out here or out there who shared the same feelings that 2018 was a transitional year and the Seahawks did a really good job of signing some role players in free agency, getting some some future core pieces, um, some outstanding young players in the draft. They really nailed the draft last year. So 2018 was about resetting things, getting back to your core philosophies, changing the offense, we, we've we talked about that ad nauseum. But then the optimistic view was, at the end of the season, another good offseason would lead to potential championship contention. I'm not so sure that's the case now. And I'm, I'm not going to give too much of this away because I'm going to write about it next week and we're going to talk about it more in depth on the podcast next week. 2019 offseason is, is looking more and more like one where they just need to take care of some in-house business and not screw anything up. <laughs> because 
the opportunity isn't there to make a lot of big gains. There's room in the salary cap to keep their stars. There's also room in the salary cap to keep their stars and add a significant free agent or two with salary structure and some other sound decisions, releasing certain guys who aren't productive and can save some cap space. There's a way to do that. But with only four draft picks, not a lot of opportunity to make impact there. So those are some of the the guidelines we're going to be looking at this offseason or the lens we're going to be looking at this offseason through is limited draft capital and how that's going to affect not just this year but future years and their approach to this year. And I'll get into that in a minute. Um, I mentioned writing. I took a, a break from writing from the end of 2016 until now. Uh, my last gig was co-editor with Keith Myers of 12th Man Rising, and that was a really fulfilling opportunity, and it was a lot of fun to dive in deep and work with Keith and write about the Seahawks on a daily basis. But ultimately, what got to me was writing about the Seahawks on a daily basis. When you have a full-time career and other interests, um, having to produce content, being required to produce content on a daily basis, um, unless you're going to pay me enough money to make it my full-time gig, it gets a little old, and, and I, got, I got a little burned out. And, and felt my uh, creative side waning, to be sure. Uh, and the passion was waning. It just kind of felt like it, a machine after a while. But I got an opportunity, thanks to Corbin Smith at Seahawk Maven, to join his staff there. And there are um, a couple of things I love about this opportunity. One is I, I love the site itself. It's, uh, it's clean. Uh, Corbin is committed to it nearly full-time. Uh, he's really built this this site from the ground floor up over the last five or six years. He writes on it almost a daily basis. He's an in, incredibly gifted writer and analyst. He spends a tremendous amount of time on film breakdowns, and his film breakdowns are as, as well-constructed as any that I've seen from other guys um, that I follow on Twitter, including some guys that work for bigger outlets. Um, he's he's really articulate, and, and he's able to take the – the, the complex X's and O's and break them down and make them very, very simple and and uh, follow along with the video. So if you don't follow Corbin Smith on Twitter, please do. If you don't read Seahawk Maven, please do. And I posted my first story. I'll be writing on a weekly basis, uh, sometimes more, depending on subject matter and the time of year. Uh, posted my first piece last week. And those of you who know me or have listened to this podcast for the better part of the last four months, know that I love the process. I love the process of team building. We all have uh, dreams of what we would do if we could go back and do it all over again, right? Or if we got three wishes or even one wish and we could pick any other career that we had wished we could have achieved. And for me, it would be running a sports franchise and particular, particularly an NFL sports franchise and even more particularly because I'm a hometown guy John Schneider has my dream job and, and I just I, I love the team building aspect the organizational structure aspect how it's really a chess game how one move can affect five other moves and can have ramifications for years and years the decisions you make the decisions you don't make um, opportunity cost of, of choosing one player over another and how those things, uh, the trickle-down effect of those, some of the risk and gamble. 
I'm fascinated by it. And so when I watch football on Sundays during the season and then during the week throughout the season and in the offseason, all around the league, but in especially, obviously, with the Seahawks, I'm intrigued by how decisions are made and the overall approach a team takes and how it can change from one year to the next based on circumstance, the environment around you, the temperature of the conference, the division, what your rivals are doing, how they're doing, how moves worked or didn't work the previous year that may alter your plan. And one of the things I've always prided myself on is the ability to ask, what if? No matter how crazy the idea might sound. And so when I was frustrated after the San Diego game and thought that Russell Wilson hadn't shown the type of progress that he should at his age and his experience in the league and and how poorly he played in that game and with the way the team is structured, um, they can ill afford for him to have a game like that in a game like that that at the time meant a lot. Uh, I threw out the idea of, hey, maybe this guy doesn't play his whole career in Seattle. Maybe it doesn't make sense to pay what's going to be in the $35 million range for a quarterback who, in a system like the Seahawks play, has so much on his shoulders to be great week in and week out with his limited opportunities that his margin for error is lower, would we be better off thinking about another way to allocate that money and, and possibly finding someone else to play quarterback? And it's, it's, it's a very unpopular stance to even consider things like that with the general population of Seahawk fandom. And the hate that I took and the, the crap that I had to eat on Twitter and, and, and I tried to I tried to fight back and tried to engage some of the people in debate because that's what I love to do. And my point was all good general managers in any sport on a daily basis when they wake up have to consider all options. If you're set in stone and close-minded and operate with blinders on and think that your way is the only way, you will probably not succeed for long in the league because the league adapts and evolves. Even Bill Belichick, who is considered by many to be the greatest coach in NFL history and has operated essentially as their general manager also, has a tremendous amount of power. Nothing gets done in New England without Belichick's blessing, whether it was his initial idea or not. He has probably made more shocking, surprising trades involving big names being shipped out than any successful general manager and coach in history. Richard Seymour in his prime, shipped out. Randy Moss, after a couple of huge years, still with a lot left in the tank, shipped out. Jamie Collins, just a couple of years ago. Logan Mankins. I, 
I could go on a Chandler Jones, who hadn't even reached his prime yet. Moves that seem crazy at the time, but there's a reason behind them. And I get it. As fans, you get emotionally involved. We get emotionally involved. I do too. But the team's still going to be here for 100 years. That player's going to be here for 4 to 10. If that. I want my team to be a winner. And if I was a general manager, that would be my only concern. And I've said this before, I'll say it briefly once again. One of the main factors that contributed to the Seahawks quote-unquote potential dynasty that they had in 2013 and, and the near miss in the Super Bowl in 2014. And one of the reasons it fell apart and they didn't get back to the Super Bowl again is because they tried to keep everybody. And what happened is during during those years then, they also suffered in the draft because there weren't as many opportunities for those young players to make an impact on the roster. They changed the way that they drafted. They started looking more for guys who fit depth pieces, upside plays, projects. The idea of always compete seemed to wane a little bit. In hindsight, and I wrote about this in the Bobby Wagner piece, imagine if they had traded Cam Chancellor when he held out a couple of years ago instead of giving him that that big extension with all that injury guarantee money. Obviously, they couldn't have seen him getting injured. But at the time, there was a real concern about doling out that kind of money to him, considering other guys on the roster who also were going to be paid or needed to be paid or needed to be kept or other holes that needed to be filled. And now, no Cam Chancellor, but yet his salary is dead money on the cap. Imagine if they had been proactive in trading him at that time. Or, two off-seasons ago, there were all the reports that the Seahawks were shopping Richard Sherman. Sure, he played well before he got injured in the year he came back after they chose not to trade him. And we'll never know what was offered or not offered. But you you have to believe that an elite cornerback in his prime would have gotten them at least a first-round pick. But imagine what they could have gotten for him and save themselves the headache of some of the things that would happen in the locker room that next year and then having to cut him after the injury and getting nothing in return. Imagine if they had chosen to move on from Michael Bennett instead of sign him to the big extension. They end up getting a fifth-round draft pick, having to eat some dead money. Or choosing to move on from Cliff Averill when he hit the age of 30. There are arguments to be made to keep all these players, certainly. But there's only so much money to go around. And you can't keep them all. When you look at the Seahawks right now, in this offseason, with only four draft picks and some significant roster needs, there aren't that many options. There aren't that many assets valuable enough to help you acquire draft capital or draft capital and young players at other positions of need. There really aren't. You're not going to trade Russell Wilson. 
There's been some talk of Justin Britt. I brought it up myself, but he doesn't have a lot of value. He might get you a mid-round draft pick. The young corners, Shaq Griffin coming off a down year, not going to fetch you much. Along the defensive line, you could franchise tag Frank Clark and try to trade him, but there's not going to be a market because there's so many elite pass-rushing defensive ends available in other ways right now, either through trade or on in free agency. Jaron Reed, maybe, but then leaves you a gaping hole up front. Bobby Wagner has one year left on his deal. He is going to command big money again when he's extended next year. And they'll have to extend him next year most likely because there are other things to be taken care of this year. He's getting to his... He's getting to be 30. He's playing at elite level. Three straight first-team All-Pro. His value will never be higher. He is the one guy on the roster that you could trade for a first-round draft pick and then some. You don't think Oakland would be interested in giving us one of their lower first-round draft picks and other pieces for a guy like Bobby Wagner or some of the other teams with cap space? Indianapolis, the New York Jets, the Cleveland Browns. He's the one guy on the roster that could fetch that in return. And so... In writing a piece like I did, I asked the question. And while I was about to say the words, it's shocking to me how many people get pissed off by the mere suggestion of trading the beloved Bobby Wagner. But I shouldn't let it piss me off anymore. Or I shouldn't let it surprise me that people are pissed off. Because I get it. But here's the thing. John Schneider's asking the question. Pete Carroll's asking the question. They've had this conversation. I can guarantee you. Why? Because they're smart people. They're smart men. They are risk takers. They've shown that in the past. You cannot run a successful organization unless you consider every option available to make your organization better. Now, what I conclude in the piece is that it's unlikely, if not impossible, that they would ever get the kind of offer that would be substantial enough to consider moving Bobby Wagner. And that he is one of those cornerstone pieces that you want to build around, who does everything right. This is not the Earl Thomas situation. Part of the reason they didn't extend Earl Thomas isn't because they thought his skills were going to decline. It, it had more to do with a lack of leadership and some attitude things. Bobby Wagner's the antithesis of that. Does everything right. Is now negotiating, uh, representing himself in negotiations, which would be interesting to see. Wants to stay in Seattle. Isn't going to hold out. Still playing at a high level. And Corbin on Seahawk Maven did a piece recently also showing that elite linebackers age well. And so, a lucrative third contract doesn't always make sense 
But in this case, it would. And I don't think there's any chance Bobby Wagner gets traded and he will sign an extension and will likely play his entire career in Seattle. But just think about that. The next time you see even a headline on Twitter or whatever, don't be lazy. Because while some people think it's it's sloppy to use the question format in a headline, it's it's the most provocative way. It's simply put the most provocative way to attract someone's attention. Ask the question, and then in the body of your story, come up with an answer. It's not an opinion piece, although I finish with an opinion, but I lay out some parallels. I try to look at other linebackers in their prime who were traded, what they got back in return. Does that match up? Is that a fair comp? Does it make sense? In many ways, this situation mirrors what the Mariners went through this offseason with Mitch Haniger. Mitch Haniger could have been had by another organization if they had made a massive offer, one that made sense for the Mariners. But that offer never came. Jerry DePoto even said out loud, if someone came along and blew the doors off, we'd consider moving Mitch Haniger. But the reason they wanted to keep him wasn't just because a big enough offer didn't come. I'm sure some offers did. And they were probably, it'd be fun to know what those were because it probably had some attractive prospect names attached. But also because they feel like he's a cornerstone guy that does everything right, that has the talent and the attitude and the approach to the game to make him worth that commitment. And that's that's the situation the Seahawks are in. It's frustrating that we don't have more options. And this is why I believe that 2020 may be a more likely target date for this team really developing in into one that could contend for the Super Bowl. And I'm going to make some more parallels between the Seahawks and the Mariners in that regard because it also involves looking at your division rivals and trying to pinpoint when the window might open for you to win the division again on your own because your main your main obstacle to doing that is going to uh, is going to be running into some some salary issues, personnel issues, things like that. And that window, uh, for the Rams anyway, isn't 2019, it's 2020. But we'll get into that uh, next week. So please keep an eye on Seahawk Maven. Um, but we are in the offseason, and it's time to think about holes on the roster and who can fill those holes. And uh, it's been speculated for about a week now, but... A reporter who covers the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the last 24 hours has tweeted out that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers plan to move on from defensive tackle Gerald McCoy. And this is one of those names that immediately I perked up when I saw. Because I think one of the Seahawks' biggest needs this offseason, we all agree on edge, but also a defensive tackle will play next to Jaron Reed. Who can penetrate. This is something the Seahawks love. Pete Carroll loves in his system. If you remember Clinton McDonald and the five and a half sacks he had in 2013. A smaller, quick, penetrating defensive tackle. You put a guy like that next to Jaron Reed, his ability to stuff the run, and as he proved in 2018 now, has developed into an interior pass rusher on his own. 
And now all the pressure isn't on the rush edge guys. Because a guy like McCoy can really help you break down the pocket from inside. A couple of things about McCoy. He's about to turn 31 years old. 6'4", listed at 300 still. But I've read some reports recently that he, he played lighter last year. 290, 287, perhaps. Trying to even get a little quicker as he ages. Um, listed as a 4-3 defensive tackle. He signed a seven-year, $95.2 million deal in 2014. That was an extension. In 2010, he was the third pick in the draft by the Bucks. He has three years left on that deal. So this is why Tampa Bay is going to let him go. He has roster bonuses in the last two years of the deal, but nothing in 2019. All he's scheduled to make in 2019 is his base salary of $13 million. That's it. That means Tampa Bay, if they cut him, gets all of that back. They save $13 million against the cap with no dead money. New coaching staff, new regime, new system. Todd Bowles going in there. Todd Bowles is a 3-4 guy. So it makes all the sense in the world. This is going to happen. And the reason he would be a fit in Seattle isn't just because of the position he plays and the way he plays it. And he's still effective. Last year in 14 games, six sacks, six tackles for loss, 21 quarterback hits. His career high in 2017, 23 quarterback hits. In 2013, he also had 21 quarterback hits to go along with nine and a half sacks. So t- last year, his second highest number of quarterback hits in his career at the age of 31. So still effective. Now the cost the cost is hard to figure. Trying to figure out how much it would take to sign Gerald McCoy. I tried to find some comps, guys that are 30 plus still effective as defensive tackles. There aren't any exact comps other than some guys that are still in the midst of massive contracts. Um, But as far as guys signed recently in their 30s, Brandon Meebane, $4.5 million a year, Kyle Williams, $5.5 million. Those guys are in their mid-30s. So it's hard to tell how much it would cost to bring Gerald McCoy into the fold. And obviously he'd have to want to come here and believe in the system, and he's going to have multiple offers. He would likely still have one decent deal left in him. He's going to be fairly expensive. I don't know what that would be. Maybe seven, $8 million a year. But again, remember, the Seahawks have enough cap space left, and I've seen some really detailed breakdowns that they can, they can complete their entire checklist. They can sign Frank Clark, extend Russell Wilson, extend Jaron Reed, keep some of their restricted free agents who are key, like Justin Coleman, and still be able to be a player in free agency and sign at least one big-time free agent or maybe a couple to mid-level deals. Gerald McCoy would make a tremendous amount of sense. He's a professional, um, plays the game the right way, and he would he would fit what they need. And he would be a released player, which would also mean he wouldn't count against the compensatory draft pick formula for 2020. And we're going to talk a lot more about this as we get into the offseason plan because that is also a key. I've heard an increasing amount of chatter in the last couple of weeks about the potential of re-signing Earl Thomas. 
He's an unrestricted free agent now. Most people had written it off, assuming that he had had it with the organization, flipped him off as he was being carted off when he got hurt in Arizona. Um, you know, the, the Seahawks clearly seemed perturbed by the way he handled his entire holdout and 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 even the things he was saying after he came back and the way he refused to practice and all of that. But the, the question begs to be asked, is Tedrick Thompson good enough long-term? And with limited draft assets, would the Seahawks be able to acquire anyone better? It's not a deep draft for center field safeties. And it would make sense, certainly, to bring Earl Thomas back from a pure football standpoint. He's already working out. The leg looks strong. He's going to be 100% come training camp. And maybe because of the injury history, you get a little bit of a discount. He's not going to get that Eric Berry contract that he wants. Has that bridge been burned? If you recall, the week after his injury, Mike Garofalo on NFL Network sat on their set and said, according to his sources, the bridges may not have been completely burned. And Seattle would potentially welcome Earl Thomas back next year. I still don't see it happening. I just think too much damage was done. I also believe, as some do, that the Seahawks are higher on Tedrick Thompson. Pete Carroll's higher on Tedrick Thompson than maybe the rest of us are. And that he thinks they can win without Earl Thomas and that that money would be better used elsewhere. I think it would be a huge upset if Earl Thomas signed back in Seattle. And I think it would only happen if he finds no market out there. And I don't believe that. I think there's going to be a market. And increasingly, what bothers me the most is a lot of people think that the Rams would be a good landing spot for him and would make some sense. And if you saw, obviously, what Richard Sherman did in going to the 49ers, and some of that was because it was reportedly the best offer, but also some of that was out of spite, right? To get to play the Seahawks twice a year. I could see Earl doing the same thing. So um, I think you're going to see increased speculation between now and the beginning of March when free agency starts. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Earl, that ship has sailed and Earl Thomas uh, won't be back. Speaking of some other ships sailing, I just wanted to point this out as well. It's We've talked about how the, the Seahawks have made some poor personnel decisions the last couple of years. And in 2017, they made a couple of choices that uh, look like they've really come back to bite them. And again, you, you can put this in the category of hindsight's 2020, but... The Indianapolis Colts have made the Seahawks pay twice for some of their decisions. One was Mark Glowinski, who was cut in 2017. And to be fair, the Seahawks thought there wouldn't be a market for, for Glowinski at the time. I can't recall who they needed a roster spot for that week, but they thought Glowinski was going to get through waivers and they'd be able to bring him back the following week. He would have fit in perfectly with Mike Solari. It would have prevented the Seahawks from having to go out and get most likely J.R. Sweezy. They probably would have kept, uh, they probably still would have signed DJ Fluker, but Glowinski uh, most likely would have been your, your starting left guard as he started an entire season at left guard for the Seahawks in 2016. Is that right? He just signed a three-year $18 million deal with the Colts. Uh, after having an outstanding year for them as a starter. And he's now firmly entrenched on the other side uh, with uh, Uber star rookie guard Quentin Nelson for the Colts, who just two years ago 
had maybe the worst offensive line in all of football and have really, really improved it, and Glowinski is one of those reasons. Pierre Desir was another interesting one, and this was one that at the time he was cut, in training camp in 2017, or on the final cut to 53, I didn't understand it. He was clearly one of the best cornerbacks in camp that year. Shaq Griffin was uh, a rookie and unproven. Uh, Sherman was still here, but none of us really knew what we had in Griffin. And Desir would have been cheap and really played well in that training camp. Since signed with the Colts, um, and he was just graded out this last season as the 18th best overall cornerback in the NFL, a grade of 77.5 by Pro Football Focus, and is now an unrestricted free agent and is probably going to have a decent market and will make some decent money this offseason. So a couple of a couple of missteps by the Seahawks. Uh, again, hindsight's 2020, but, man, both of those guys sure looked good on the team in 2018. Speaking of guys who look good, each week now leading up to the draft, I'm going to take a look at a potential draft prospect who would help the Seahawks and, and possibly fit in. Not necessarily first-round guys, but that's that's where the focus will be for the, the first couple of months. Um, Seahawks have the 21st pick, and most mock drafts have them taking an edge rusher, and that's for a couple of reasons. I think we all agree that finding someone to pair with Frank Clark as... Um, as a pass rusher is a real need. The pass rush improved. It got more consistent as the year went on last year. And But to play in this division and to play against the 49ers and their system and the Rams and then the Cardinals with, with them developing Josh Rosen and with Cliff Kingsbury being the coach, and they're going to implement some air, raid, um, some air raid principles down there with the Cardinals. Getting pressure on those guys, we've seen it. We've seen it from Goff, and we're going to see it tomorrow. If the Patriots can pressure Goff, they're going to win the Super Bowl. That's my belief. We're going to talk a little bit more Super Bowl here in a minute. But when Goff is pressured, he's a different guy. Most quarterbacks are. You know, we're lucky. Russell Wilson grades out as one of the best quarterbacks in the league against pressure, but Goff is a completely different guy. So in this division, to play against some of those pass-happy offenses. The pass rush has to be a key. Maybe even more so than the back end. Give them less time to cover. To have to cover. It's easier, you could argue, to find pass rushers than it is to find elite cover guys that can lock receivers down for three to five seconds. And it just so happens it's the strength of this draft. And so if the Seahawks sit at 21, and they likely won't, they'll likely trade down, but... End of the first round. We're looking for guys that might slide through as pass rushers. One guy that really stands out to me is Ja'Kai Polite from Florida. He's a really interesting dude. He's 6'2", 240, which doesn't sound like classic defensive end specs, right? A little short, but consider this. Bruce Irvin, 6'3", 250. Seahawks took him in the top 20 in the draft, right? Jacob Martin, 6'2", 236, almost an exact match to the body type of Polite. He's incredibly quick, but for a guy who's quick, a lot of guys in college rack up sacks because they have a good burst, but they don't have good hands, they don't have good bend, they don't have pass rush moves. Polite does. 15 sacks in his career at Florida, 
over three years, played as a true freshman. He's coming out early. 11 of those last year as a junior, along with 19 and a half tackles for loss. And somebody tweeted out a video this morning of him against Tennessee. And just, well, actually, you can look at my timeline because I retweeted it. Take a look at it, okay? He's rushing off of the left edge, and Tennessee runs a screen pass. And so they let him go, right? He's, he's bearing down on the quarterback, but the quarterback flips it out to the, the running back out in the flat on a conventional screen play. Polite turns around and pursues. And we've seen guys do this before. We've seen guys with great motors that'll turn around and chase a play downfield. But I don't think I've ever seen this. He turns around, and and the running back takes the screen down the right sideline. Polite runs down the sideline with him, gets in front of him as the running back makes a move, turns around, and tackles him head on, hard, with perfect form. Drives him into the ground. I don't think I've ever seen that. The quickness, the motor, the tenacity... I can't find any red flags on this guy other than his unconventional size. Now, there's a question of, because of Jacob Martin, and he really flashed at the end of the year, is he redundant? Do we already have that guy? Because he's mostly a pass rush specialty or, or a specialist. Um, gets caught in the wash on run plays. You know, we saw this with Irvin. It's the reason Martin will never be an every down player. And polite likely wouldn't either. So he may be a redundant player, but he's one worth looking at because depending on where they draft, he may be available. Now, he may not. Mel Kuyper has him at 14 on his big board. CBS Sports has him at number 10 overall. Daniel Jeremiah has him at 26. So he's a little more bullish on him. But he doesn't have him being taken in the first round when he goes through and looks at team need and where other guys match up. So... He may be a guy that's available if the Seahawks trade down. He may be a guy that's redundant and they don't consider because they already have that on the roster. But um, get to know that name because if he's called on draft day by the Seahawks, he's a guy definitely worth getting excited about. Now, one more thing to talk about before we move on to baseball. Tomorrow's the Super Bowl, and this this is a tough one. I love football, and I love the Super Bowl. And sometimes the game doesn't live up to the hype. If you remember, there was about a 10-year stretch there where the, where the game was a blowout every year, and that that really was lame. Um, but I always find a reason to look forward to it. I always find um, sometimes it's not logical. Sometimes I kind of have to get to game time before I decide what team that I really like. But I usually have a dog in the race, and, and there's one team over the other that I'm pulling for. At the conclusion of the championship games two weeks ago, I was so upset by how both games ended up um, that my first reaction was, I don't want to watch the Super Bowl this year. Let's go do something else that day. (laughs) Everyone's going to be at home in their Super Bowl parties. We can go shopping. We can go see a movie. We can go somewhere. No one's going to be out and about. Um, As I get closer to the game, though, it's the Super Bowl. I got to watch it, right? But who do I root for? And on a broader um, scope, who should Seahawk fans root for? I've seen a lot of talk this week that there's absolutely no way you can root for the Patriots. That it would somehow be sacrilegious if you root for the Patriots. And I don't understand that. 
Is that because they beat us in the Super Bowl? That was our doing. We had a 10-point lead late in the game. Blew it. If Curse catches that third down pass and we go down and score and make it a three-score game, the game might be over. If we execute properly on that final play, we score, we win the Super Bowl. We They didn't take a Super Bowl from us or... You know, and I get some of the other anti-patriot sentiment. I get, uh, first of all, dynasties are boring. We get tired of seeing the same teams win all the time, right? We get tired of seeing Tom Brady up there talking about what a joy it is for him to win another Super Bowl or be in another Super Bowl. We get tired of Bill Belichick uh, and his his gruff demeanor during press conferences and, and him being an asshole to reporters and not wanting to answer questions. I get all that, but... There's some things I don't understand, too. I never, never understood all the hatred about Deflategate. I thought that was blown way out of proportion. I don't... Yeah, if they broke rules, they should have been punished for it. But did it a half ounce less air in the football make Tom Brady a better quarterback than he was previously or has been since? No, it didn't help them win games. I think it. I think it just comes from Super Bowl Forty Nine and the fact that they beat us. But here's the thing: Do you want the team in your division that you're trying to overcome to win the Super Bowl? Do you want them to become that team now that other guys want to play for? They already have the hotshot young coach and the sexy offense, right? Deshaun Jackson came out this week. He's under contract with another another team, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he came out and said, man, I'd love to play for the Rams. Imagine what that would be if they won the Super Bowl. And I used to be of the thought that, well, that would motivate my team to then want to get to a higher level to overcome them because now they're taking aim at the Super Bowl champion. They should have that bar set that high anyway. I don't want to see the Rams win the Super Bowl, and neither should you. Now, just by them being in the Super Bowl, there are some things that, as Seahawks fans, we should see as strong points. There is a legitimate Super Bowl effect and a Super Bowl hangover. They get a shorter offseason. Guys' bodies have less time to recover. They do the media circuit afterwards. It's guys want to get paid. Whether they win or lose the Super Bowl, guys want to get paid. They try to take advantage of being on top. Salary caps get stressed. It's harder to keep everybody. We denied it was going to happen to the Seahawks. We didn't believe it, but we saw it happen. Okay? And depending on how the game goes itself, we saw it in Super Bowl 49. There was so much dissension because of the Super Bowl loss that it affected the team for two years. I'm not saying that that's going to happen to the Rams, but those things tend to happen more to teams that lose Super Bowls than win them. Whereas if the Patriots win, who cares? It's another Super Bowl win. The dynasty continues. It's going to come to an end at some point. But let's look in our own backyard. We don't want the Rams winning that Super Bowl. We just don't. I don't anyway. And not that I'm going to be rooting 
for the Patriots. I don't see myself jumping up off the couch and pumping my fist over a Brady to Edelman touchdown. I guess I'm just going to be hoping that the Rams don't win. So that's where I stand. Let's talk about some baseball. Believe it or not, nine days remain until pitchers and catchers report to Peoria for the Seattle Mariners. Spring training is upon us. Um, Thursday here actually felt like spring, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So I love this time of year, even though we're in the, the, the heart of winter. And we will likely see a couple of stretches of weather that have yet to come our way that will be uh, horrific. Uh, we can start to believe and, and really feel spring coming uh, because spring training is, is almost in session. Mariners signed another bullpen arm this last week, Hunter Strickland, formerly of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, a guy who, if he has a good spring, will probably get first crack at being the closer. He's got the closer mentality. He's closed out games before. He's closed out important games. He's pitched in the World Series. Throws in the mid-90s, nasty stuff. Um, and he's a guy that has a couple years of club control left, too. And so um, while I, I don't think he would be a long-term bullpen piece for the Mariners, he could be. If he were to develop into a big-time closer, um, he could be an affordable, attractive option for the Mariners going forward. Or, more likely, he would build some significant value to be traded and get a couple of valuable pieces back in return because cheap, dominant, affordable closers with control have a lot of value in trade. So um, not a lot of money in this deal either. So really low risk, high potential reward. Uh, nice little signing for Hunter Strickland. Been thinking a lot more about this Mariners rebuild uh, this last week. And part of it was because um, they had a big pre-spring training press conference last week. Brought some of the big, uh, the young guys out that have been acquired through some of these trades over the last couple of months. J.P. Crawford, Malik Smith, Justice Sheffield all appeared at a press conference, and they appear to be the guys the team is putting forth as the centerpieces of this rebuilding process, and for good reason. Smith is going to be the everyday center fielder um, from opening day on. He's major league ready. He's had a couple good years in the majors. He's ready to go. Sheffield will make his debut for the Mariners this year at some point, whether he breaks with the team uh, as part of the rotation spring training remains to be seen. He may start out in Tacoma, um, but at 22 years old, um, he has the stuff and the personality to be a centerpiece of that rotation. And then J.P. Crawford, again, may not break camp with the team. I think they'd like to start the year with him at Tacoma to make sure he's he's absolutely ready. Um, they signed Tim Beckham to play shortstop. Uh, with that in mind, but he's also a guy, dynamic personality, guy who is a top 20 prospect for three straight years, who they feel is a centerpiece of the rebuild. In fact, Jerry DePoto said something fascinating this week. He said the team underwent an exercise in September. So before last season was even over, they had an idea of what they were going to do in the offseason, even though they hadn't shared it or hinted at it even uh, in public or to the press. DePoto talked about an exercise where he took his entire front office uh, baseball operations staff and handed them a blank piece of paper with 25 slots on it and said, fill out a roster. Fill out an ideal, an, an ideal roster for the Mariners moving forward where you'd like us to get to. And anything's possible. You can trade any contract. Uh, he, he had some stipulations, one being that f any free agents you sign have to be for viable dollars. You can't just, you know... This isn't on a, on a wish and a prayer. Make it realistic. 
And he said that on almost every single one of those worksheets, J.P. Crawford was named as the shortstop of the future for the Mariners. So this is a guy the organization feels very highly about and um, has put a lot of stock into because he was the only long-term piece coming back in that deal that involved Gene Segura. And a lot of people slammed them for that, thought they should have got more. But clearly they feel good enough about Crawford that they think it's going to be worth it in the end. But I want to focus on three other guys because I think ultimately, while those three, Smith, Sheffield, and Crawford, are going to be the short-term base of this rebuild, along with Justin Dunn, who's probably about a year away, they're going to be the guys that fans see first. They're all going to be in the big leagues this year. And so many fans will judge the rebuild on them. And if we get to 2020, for example, and Sheffield's scuffling or Crawford really hasn't adjusted with the bat, there will be a lot of criticism. This rebuild's a failure. People like to rush to judgment, jump to conclusions. This rebuild's a failure. Crawford's nothing more than a league average shortstop, while Segura's still hitting 300 in Philly. Sheffield's not as good as James Paxton. We took a step back there. He's... He's probably going to end up as a bullpen guy. Smith is never going to repeat the year that he had with Tampa Bay in 2018. He's just another guy out in center field. Those will be the first guys that are the focal point of the rebuild. And the rebuild could be judged unfairly, harshly, if those three struggle early in their careers. But to me, let's look two or three or four years down the line. And there's three other names that are going to be the key to Jerry DePoto's legacy and whether he stays even longer than the extension he signed last year and is the long-term GM here. And if this thing works and takes them not only to contention in 2021, but sets them up for perennial contention. Jared Kelenic, Julio Rodriguez, and Logan Gilbert. Kelenic was the centerpiece of the Mets deal. The 19-year-old outfielder just drafted last year out of the Minnesota area has all the makings of a potential superstar. Imagine Mitch Haniger 10 years younger. Rodriguez signed out of the Dominican League as a teenager, just turned 18, hasn't played stateside, but will this year. He's in Peoria right now working out with the team. He will play in one of their um, United States-based rookie league teams this year. And then Logan Gilbert, the six foot six inch right-handed starting pitcher, drafted last year in the first round out of Stetson. Didn't pitch after being drafted last year because he came down with a case of mono. Um, but he'll make his debut in the in the system this year. Why do I believe those three guys are going to be the key? Not just because of their age range, right? But because the one thing we have yet to see out of a Jerry Depoto Mariner organization is player development. We haven't seen any fruits yet of the player development labors. And that player development um, staff led by Andy McKay. Because he's, he's mostly used, obviously, the trade route for acquisition. And his first three years, he was trying to be competitive and build around the core pieces that were locked into the, to big contracts on the big league level. And so he was trading away young players in order to get major league assets back. Now he's flipped the script and we're building long-term, so he's trading away assets for young players in return. Now they have to develop them, and we have to see that all these systems that he talks about, 
all these organizational processes that are in place. We have to see them work. And we haven't yet. We haven't yet seen a guy acquired by DePoto at a young age advance through the system and become a viable major league player, let alone a star. Kyle Lewis might have arrived at the majors by now and been that first example if he wouldn't have suffered that gruesome knee injury his rookie year in Everett and just now is getting to the point where he's that's behind him after two years of fighting through it that the staff has now said, and DePoto says, the knee's not an issue for Kyle Lewis anymore. We'll see if he can take a step forward on the field this year with his talent. There are some positive signs out of Evan White last year, first-round draft pick from two years ago, first baseman, um, in how his bat advanced at the end of last year due to some swing changes that were suggested to him and, and coached into him by Mariner coaches at the AA level and in the Arizona Fall League. So he could be the first guy to come out of that group. But these three, so much is riding on them. Rodriguez and Kelenic are franchise-changing type potential stars. If those two young outfielders reach their ceiling or anywhere close to it, we're talking superstars. And Gilbert, while he doesn't project to be a staff ace, he's not Forrest Whitley, he's not one of those guys, he certainly projects as a potential three or maybe a two if everything comes together. But what's significant about him is he's the first starting pitcher drafted by DePoto that has a chance to project to the top of the rotation. Sam Carlson might have qualified for that, but the Tommy John surgery, that's going to put him behind uh, by a couple of years. Uh so we're not going to hear from Sam Carlson again for a while. But Logan Gil- Gilbert's going to start pitching in the, in the system this year. And his development and his arrival um, will say a lot about the systems that DePoto's put in place too. So those are three names to really tuck away. And if you're a real geeky baseball fan like me, MILB.com is the website you want to follow. And when the season starts, keep an eye on those guys. Check in on them every couple of weeks. See how they're doing. And their development over the next couple of years will be a huge key to the future future success of the Mariners. All right, a couple of new um, segments that I'm debuting. Um, I've told you that this podcast won't all be about sports. And early on, I did talk about some, some music things in particular. Um, I have interests in movies and food and bartending hospitality industry, and then just everyday life, right? People being people is something that drives me crazy on a daily basis. So we're going to get away from the stat of the week for a while because we're in the offseason. Not, not a lot of stats um, will have great meaning in the offseason. And tweets of the week will appear when there are tweets worthy of creating uh, or having a segment for them. Um, but the two new ones are, the first one's pet peeves. Pet peeves. I find myself on a daily basis talking about these, and so I might as well put them on on record and talk to you about them. Um, and I have a big one this week. This is one that's been brewing for a while, but it, it really comes to a head today on February second, two thousand nineteen. I'm a huge music fan, in particular, a big rock music fan, and even more in particular, a live rock music fan. 
Eric and I love going to concerts. And while in 2019, we're saying no to more of those concerts because we have some financial goals we're trying to achieve, there is nothing better than going to see live music. Um, and especially a band that you love and are passionate about. And what I love about rock music in a live setting is how raw and real it is as opposed to some of this crap these days. And yes, for a moment, I'm going to sound like your grandfather. I'm going to sound like the guy, the old man on the porch telling you to get off his lawn. I'm going to be my dad for a moment who thought all the music I listened to as a kid was a racket and from the devil. Some of this pop music out there today is crap. When you see someone like Post Malone standing on stage all by himself with no backing band at all, not only singing to a track, but clearly using auto-tune, not as an effect, but as a crutch on every single song that he sings, and I'm using air quotes here, sings, but yet he's packing arenas and kids are eating this shit up and they think that they're passionate about music. It drives me crazy. But that's not my particular pet peeve. At least from what I can tell. He's using auto-tune because he's really, again, here come the air quotes, singing into the mic. But what I hate, and my biggest pet peeve when it comes to live music, is lip-syncing. Tonight at the Tacoma Dome, KISS is performing. And whatever you think of KISS, you cannot deny their impact on the rock music world. How hard they worked to become a band when they were young, how hard they worked to become huge, and how they changed the live music landscape. That no effect was impossible. That no stage show was too big. And regardless of what you think of their music, um, until fairly recently... For about 30 years, they could claim they had more gold records than anyone in history except for the Beatles. But regardless about what you think of their music, they always performed live. Always. They would brag about it. They would rip on other bands that use backing tracks. They're on record. As recently as two or three years ago chastising other bands for using backing tracks and for lip syncing. And yet here they are, they're three or four shows into what they say is their farewell tour, their end of the road tour, even though it's scheduled to last for two or three years. But even if I hadn't seen it myself, I probably would have predicted or guessed that they'd be lip syncing to some extent on this tour. Because for the last two years, Paul Stanley's voice has clearly been shot. YouTube, KISS, live performance, 2017 or 2018, when they weren't on tour, but they were doing some one-off shows here and there. And listening to Paul try to sing is, is painful. Admirable that he was still trying to do it live and didn't just immediately give in, in to lip-syncing, but now you're talking about millions upon millions of dollars at stake on this tour. And they know that if they went on stage 
and he sounded as bad as he sounded in some of those live YouTube clips over the last couple of years, that eventually they'd be playing to empty arenas or half empty arenas and they'd have to cancel some shows. It wouldn't be a success. So the first hint that they were going to be lip syncing was when they were promoting this tour. They did appearances on Fallon and Kimmel where they were clearly, Paul Stanley was clearly lip syncing. They never used to do that before. Not even on TV shows. And most bands play 100% live on Fallon and Kimmel. But now they're, they've had dates in Vancouver, B.C. and Portland. And it's so obvious that Paul Stanley's lip syncing and not even doing it well. You can see times, first of all, the level of the vocals is exactly the same throughout every song. No matter how much he's moving around. But there are clearly times that you can pinpoint on the video where he pulls away from the mic. Or even stops singing a word and closes his mouth while the word is still coming out uh, on tape. And the crowd's hearing it. It's something that I'm sure at some point somebody will go once there's a little more sample size. And they'll take like Detroit Rock City from Vancouver, B.C. and Detroit Rock City from Portland. And they'll match them up. And you'll be able to see that it's the exact same backing track. It's not off the record. He's not taking Destroyer and replaying Detroit Rock City. He went into a studio and made sure that he was at his best, took care of his voice, take after take after take, whatever it took, to record a live-sounding edition of that song, and that's what they're using live. His mic is live. So he can still throw in some ad-libs or, hey, Portland. But he's lip-syncing. And it pisses me off because I wanted to go to this tour. My first concert ever, 1978, Seattle Center Coliseum. That's what it was called then, not Key Arena. In their heyday, saw them live with Cheap Trick opening up. Nobody knew who Cheap Trick was at the time. Now they're a Hall of Fame band. Saw them again the next year in 79. Saw them again live later without makeup. They always played 100% live. They always put on a great show. Never mailed it in. Always fun to watch. The material's easy to sing along to. And I and Erica had never seen Kiss Live. I really wanted to go to this show. But even when tickets were, first went on sale and were pretty reasonable, could have sat close to the stage for about 100 bucks. The Fallon and Kimmel appearances had already happened. And now I'm so glad, so glad I didn't take a night off from work and then pay the money to go see them in Tacoma tonight. And if you are, and if you don't care about lip-syncing, fine, just enjoy the show. But to me, it's a joke. Also, they're selling they're selling their concert t-shirts for 100 bucks. No one has ever sold a concert t-shirt for $100, even at the big-name concerts. You can go see U2. They're selling their shirts for $40 to $50. The smaller shows, $20 to $25. You want $100 for a t-shirt? That's how you're, that's how you're going to thank loyal fans for all their years of support, making you a Hall of Fame band, making you rich beyond your wildest dreams. You're going to try and you're going to charge us $100 for a concert t-shirt to hear you lip sync? Fuck you, Kiss. I'll just hang on to my vivid memories of seeing you in 78 and 79 in your heyday when it was real. I even saw him five years ago at Key Arena, and it was 100% live. I'll hang on to that. Thank you very much. So that's this week's pet peeve. And now finally, 
and, and I said it in the intro, and it may have raised an eyebrow or two, but this is legit. We're going to do a segment on a weekly basis called Dan's Dandy. It might sound corny, but it didn't back in 1991 because that's when I started this segment. When I was a sports director on KEPR CBS TV in the Tri-Cities in Pasco, Washington, back then in the early 90s, having a play of the day if you were a sports anchor was kind of required. It was a thing. I believe CNN actually started it before ESPN started doing something similar. I think CNN was the first to do play of the day. Um, Dan's Dandy was mine. Sometimes I would take something off a national feed. Whenever possible, though, I would use something local from a local high school football game, basketball game, what have you. And so this is going to have a pretty broad spectrum, pretty wide breadth but Dan's Dandy is just going to be my recommendation each week of uh, something that I saw or experienced during the week that I really liked. It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a restaurant or a bar that I went to. It could be a specific dish that I had or a show that I discovered uh, that I'm streaming. Um, so that's what Dan's Dandy is going to be. And this week, uh, finally... Eric and I got around to watching uh, the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, even though it's out now uh, and you can buy it and rent it on Blu-ray and DVD and whatnot, stream it. Um, there's still a couple theaters that are showing it. And on our day off last Monday, uh, there was a theater here in Issaquah, IMAX theater that was still showing it. And I really wanted to see it in the theater. I was a huge Queen fan when I was when I was young. And actually, so I told you that my first two concerts ever were Kiss in 78 79. In 1980, my third concert ever... Uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to say that I saw Queen on the game tour at the Seattle Center Coliseum with Freddie Mercury, of course. And uh, it was unbelievable. And I'm so glad I got to see him while he was alive and really wanted to see this movie. Um, and I'm glad I did. It's it's a terrific performance, in particular uh, from Rami Malek, who plays Freddie Mercury. It's not the type of movie that I... I think I would watch over and over and over again. But biopics are hard to do. They're really hard to do. Because people have memories. And now you can go on YouTube. You can go on YouTube, and I've, I've fallen into this rabbit hole this week in watching Queen documentaries and reliving some of that. And also just watching Freddie Mercury interviews. You can do that for hours and hours ad nauseum. So doing biopics for an actor is very, very difficult because people have preconceived notions. You know, the older and older and older you get, the farther it gets buried in the past, the easier it is for the actor. Playing Abraham Lincoln isn't difficult or as difficult because none of us saw him talk. We don't know what his mannerisms are. But someone like Freddie Mercury, who was so distinct in how he carried himself and projected and his personality and his, his flair and his flamboyance, that's a tall task. And thankfully, there was a change because originally it was supposed to be Sasha Baron Cohn that was going to play the role. And while when that was first announced, I could see how he could resemble him physically. I can't imagine him having the acting chops that Malik did uh, to get it spot on. And the care with which they took in particular in filming um, the, pent the penultimate scene, the, the climax of the movie, the Live Aid performance, almost in its entirety. Um, 
it reminded me of the the movie Miracle about the 1980 U.S. hockey team, where they took they were painstaking in in the level of detail in matching up exactly what his movements were to what Freddie Mercury did on that day at Live Aid back in the 80s. Um, it's it's a great movie whether you loved Queen or didn't love Queen, and clearly it's making an impact because I went to look for tickets to see Queen starring Adam Lambert in the Tacoma Dome in June. Not only is it sold out, but the least expensive resale ticket I could find um, was three or $400, and those were nosebleed seats. So, I mean, good for Queen, but I imagine that that Tacoma Dome is going to be filled with uh, more than 50% people who never were fans during their actual run. So, uh, highly recommend Bohemian Rhapsody. If you didn't catch it in the theaters, um, rent it. It's worth it. Um, I would recommend if you do watch it at home, uh, hopefully you have a good soundbar system, uh, subwoofer, or some surround sound, because the music, they, they use all the original music. And this was another thing I appreciated about the choices they made in this movie, because there's two def- there's two ways you can go when you're doing a musical biopic. You can either use the original sound, or you can create it new. There's a movie coming out about the life of Elton John soon that we saw the trailer to before Bohemian Rhapsody. And the actor playing John actually recorded all of the vocals himself. You can pull that off sometimes. Obviously, the actor has to be able to replicate the sound of that singer close enough. But it does give you a sense of originality um, because you know it's not lip syncing. Freddie Mercury's voice was so distinct and those performances were so unique and legendary that I think it was the right thing to do to use the actual sound. Um, and then you may, after the movie, if you enjoyed as much as I did, whether you were a fan before or not, go down that rabbit hole and start listening to Queen again. Um, if you do, I make one other recommendation. Don't pick an album and listen to it start to finish. The thing about Queen, and I think the thing that made them great, is they they never limited themselves. They were very experimental. Um, there was no musical style they wouldn't tackle. And, and, and the way that they tried to uh, go about the creative process is anything goes. And so what you would get from album to album is three to five great songs and three to five kind of bizarre, weird, experimental forays into different styles and um they were they were hit or miss from single to single their hit rate definitely was not a thousand percent and there are quite a few songs that if i'm listening to you know their their entire anthology i will skip through so listen to their live records i grew up listening to live killers but i would recommend live in montreal because it's later in their career after the game, after innuendo, so it's got all the songs like We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions and uh, Another One Bites the Dust and Radio Gaga. It's got the later hits, but it also has all the classic songs. And when they play their live set, they focus more on the hard rock hits and obviously the big ballad hits. So some of the weird experimental stuff is left out. So um, that's Dan's Dandy for this week. And that's actually the Dan Cave for this week. Um, I, uh, I'll get back onto a weekly basis here in the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about the, the Super Bowl results 
and maybe a little more detail about what the Rams look like for 2019, their salary cap situation, and how that fits in with the Seahawks. I, I touched on it earlier, but next week I'm going to write about this for Seahawk Maven, and then we'll dive a little deeper um, in next week's episode on here about how the Seahawks' true window of opportunity to be Super Bowl contenders in the NFC maybe 2020 as opposed to 2019. Thank you again for listening. I appreciate your support. If you haven't subscribed, if you're listening for the first time, please click that subscribe button. I would appreciate that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. You can email me at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. You can read my stuff along with Corbin Smith on Seahawks Maven. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you next week. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners. Go Cougs.